And I could think of no better way than to close out uh, Mission Month than to speak with you about some of the greatest missionaries the world has ever known. Pushan might need to help. So when we, if we were to look up the list of some of the world's greatest missionaries, you'd find pretty near the top of the list this man, William Carey, who was the founder of uh, modern Protestant missions and founder of the Baptist Missionary Society. You'd find Hudson Taylor, founder of the China Inland Mission, himself a missionary to China for over 50 years and responsible for bringing another 800 missionaries to that country after him, a country that's set within our lifetime to become the biggest um, per capita Christian country in the world. You'll find Amy Carmichael, 55 years serving in India, 55 years without furlough. Um, you would find William Cameron Townsend, uh, a man that many of you will know had a real heart for having the scriptures placed in the hands of those that need them in the language that they could understand. Founder of uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators and the Summer Institute of Linguistics. You would find this man, George Muller, my personal favourite because he just has a serene face that just looks like a man who is at one with God. And uh, he uh, took care of tens of thousands of children through the orphanages that he founded. Um, but the amazing thing about this man is that he did it all without ever asking anyone for any support of any kind. Such was his faith in God to lay on the hearts of others the needs for that mission. You'll find Helen Rosary, 20 years serving in the Congo. She was taken hostage by rebel forces um, some way through that period of service, um, kidnapped, uh, spent five months as a hostage where she endured repeated be beatings, uh, rapings. Um, she was eventually released. The amazing thing about her, she returned after all of that to that country to help uh, the country get back on its feet after that time of trouble had happened. At the top of many of these lists, you will of course find the Apostle Paul, great teacher, uh, pioneer of the early church, an encourager of the early church, wrote much of the, the New Testament that we have today. You will not, on any of these lists, at least none that I have ever seen, find reference to perhaps the greatest missionary that the world has ever known. The one uh, without whom I'm sure all of these people would say that all of their efforts would have amounted to nothing, and that is, of course, the Holy Spirit who is, or at least should be, the senior partner in every mission project. Unfortunately, the Holy Spirit, um, I believe, is the most neglected, misunderstood, and dare I say it, even the most abused member of the Trinity. You see, we crucified Christ, but at least people paid attention to him. In the Western world, I think the main reaction that we have to the Holy Spirit is one of ignorance. And in saying that, I don't want you to think that I'm pointing the finger at any of these missionaries or the mission societies which sent them, because if anyone knows what it means to partner with the Holy Spirit, it is these people. 
But in general, I think all of us struggle to come to terms with the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in particular in mission. And there are some very real reasons for this. Most of us can relate to God as a father. We've all had a father. And for most of us, that was a positive experience. Our fathers nurtured us, they provided for us. And if you happen to have been one of those unfortunate people who didn't have that example of a loving, nurturing father, or perhaps you don't even know who your father is, you know someone who has a father who um, can give that positive role model experience. And so we can relate to the image of God the Father. We can also relate to Jesus. Jesus, God incarnate, which means Jesus, what means literally God with flesh on. We know that he came and he walked the earth. We can relate to being born as a baby, to growing up as a child, to becoming an adult. Um, we can read about all of his stories in the Gospels and all of the things that he did. So this is um, another member of the Trinity that we don't have a lot of problem relating to. But where we get all tangled is in relating to God the Holy Spirit. So we have many images in the Bible that talk about the spirit like wind or like a fire or a dove or, or a ghost, an image that confuses a lot of people. And we talk about him being a presence in our lives. Very hard for people to understand, particularly people in the, the Western world. Let me illustrate something of this problem here with some statistics. There was a survey done in 2009 in the USA where they surveyed 1,871 self-proclaimed Christians. Now, that's a reasonable sample size, 1,800-plus people. And they were asked questions about God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, Satan, and demons. And I think the results of this survey are a very sad insight into the state of the church today. When it comes to God, there was plenty of agreement 78%, which is the, the vast majority, said that God was the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe who rules the world today. The remaining 22% chose other images of God that aren't consistent with the Bible, such as everyone is God or God is the realisation of human potential. But by and large, the vast majority agreed um, with that description of who God is. However... When it came to the Holy Spirit, things start to fall apart. Most of those professing Christians that were surveyed did not actually believe that the Holy Spirit was even a living entity. So the statement that was put to them was, the Holy Spirit is a symbol of God's power or presence, but is not a living entity. 58% of people agreed with that statement, and 9% had no idea which means only 34% of the American Christians surveyed actually believe that the Holy Spirit is alive, which is a huge problem for the church and for mission at large. I don't know what those people make of the words of Jesus at the bottom of the slide there, where he said, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives within you and will be in you. We'll also never know how these Christians reconcile the fact that the Bible clearly speak, uh, states that the Holy Spirit can speak, makes decisions, can be grieved, can be outraged, can be lied to, can intercede for us, can bear witness to Christ and to believers, 
can comprehend God's thoughts and prevent human speech and plans, only a living being can do any of those things. Now, statistics are one thing, and American statistics are very much another thing, but let's bring it a little bit closer to home. I, I, I think it's a safe bet that if I were to tell you that I had arranged that tomorrow Jesus Christ was going to walk through the door and he was going to make himself available here for a, a session with us all in which he would provide some teaching and help us with our mission to the community. Now, assuming that you all believed that that was actually going to happen, I think this auditorium would be packed out tomorrow. People would be taking days off work, they'd be inviting friends, everyone would want to have an audience with Jesus. And yet what we fail to realise is that we already have all of that available to us. Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever. So if he's sending another counsellor, that means there must have already been one, that was Jesus, he's sending another who's going to be like him and he's going to be with us forever. In fact, Jesus went further to say that it was actually better for us that he goes away so that this other counsellor will come because he will take from Jesus what is his and make it known to us. In spite of this, most people still prefer to look longingly back at the disciples and say, wouldn't it have been great to have lived then when Jesus walked around with us and talked to us? instead of looking forward, secure in the knowledge that we don't proceed alone. It's my belief that there are two things that cripple the church. One is our prayerlessness and the other is our ignorance of the Holy Spirit. One of my favourite authors, Francis Chan, puts it this way. He said, if I was Satan... And my ultimate goal was to thwart God's kingdom and purposes. One of my main strategies would be to get churchgoers to ignore the Holy Spirit. It's a very simple strategy and it's one I think he's having a lot of success with today. And we're planning a much more detailed series on the Holy Spirit towards the end of this year. But all I want to do today is to just give you a little taste by just looking at the role of the Holy Spirit in Christian mission today. So if you've got Bibles, would you turn with me to today's reading, which is from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, a passage that will be very familiar to most of you, I think. So Luke writes, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
And he said to them, It is not for you to know the dates, the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What an absolutely amazing time that must have been. Now this is a a well-known and obviously much-loved passage and it tends to come around every year about this time in May um, because it's one of our go-to passages on mission. The trouble is that the bit that everyone remembers about this passage is this last line. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We remember the mission, but we gloss over the bit about how the mission is going to happen. Now, if you happen to do early New Testament church at Bible College, as I did last semester, they will drum into you how important this verse is and how it sets the scene for the whole rest of the book of Acts. And In fact, last year there was even an exam question on it. One of the questions we had to do was this question about the importance of this Um, particular verse and I wrote five pages on on that and I still am not convinced that this is the most important um, verse in the book of Acts. I'm not even convinced that it's the most important verse in this particular passage. I think the most important verse in this particular passage comes at the very beginning and it can be summarised quite simply in just one word. So if you're taking notes or you need to remember what was said today, you've only got one word that you need to remember because the whole message is summed up in this one particular word, began. In the very first verse, Luke explains to Theophilus, and Theophilus is the recipient of the the writing. He's likely the patron who was responsible for copying and distributing Luke's writings for him. He explains that he wrote in his previous book, which is the Gospel of Luke, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. And so what that implies, that if the point at which Jesus died was resurrected and taken up to heaven was only the beginning of what Jesus had to do, it implies that there must be more to come. Death was not the end for Jesus. In fact, Luke says it was just the beginning of all that Jesus would do and teach. His mission continues today. Indeed, all Christian mission belongs to him. So the question remains, how does a man who's no longer living on earth continue his mission? And the answer we're going to see falls out in the rest of the passage. Of course, we join him in that ministry by the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, he instructs the disciples not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the gift that the Father has promised, which you had heard him speak about. So we need to back up a little bit and uh, find out what exactly Jesus said about this gift. And we can find that in the book of John. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate 
to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he lives within you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. On that day, you will realise that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. So how does a man who's no longer living on the earth continue his ministry and mission? Verse 18 says, I will not leave you as orphans. Well, how can that be if he's going to ascend to heaven? Jesus says, I will come. There's lots of eyes in this passage. So he's going away, but he's going to come back again. And when he comes back, he'll be alive. Because he says so in verse 19. And because he's alive, we also will live. And he tells the disciples he'll be in the Father and they'll be in him and he in them. And it all sounds a bit complicated. But it's okay because on that day, all will be made clear. Which is that day? Well, it's the day when the helper or the advocate comes the spirit of truth that's when this divine mystery will be made known I will not leave you as orphans I will come to you I am in you he does all of this by the third person of the trinity the holy spirit that's how the mission of Jesus continues on the earth in verse 6 the disciples asked Lord are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel Now, I reckon if there was ever a time when Jesus kind of went, it would probably be that time. Because here they are, they're all excited about the resurrection, um, everything that they thought was going to happen at the cross has now been revealed in the resurrection. um, And it reignites all of their old worldviews. And they think that the, the... that Jesus is going to bring in some sort of political or military-style overthrow of Roman oppression. But Jesus, of course, has something far greater in store for them. Verse 8, then, is the traditional one that we all see as the instruction manual for mission. It contains the mission, it contains the where and the how. So the mission, you will be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. How? by the power of the Holy Spirit. So linking back to verse 1, it's clear that there's no mission that we can actually claim to be ours. Verse 1 states that the Gospels proclaim that all that Jesus began to do and teach until the time he was taken up to heaven. So the rest of it is what's happening now. That is also the mission of Jesus. It's not sufficient just to know the mission the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and ends of the earth part, we also need to know whose mission it is and trust him to know best how to do it. You know, there are all sorts of distractions when you're out the front here. Um, There are people that come in late that you haven't seen for a long time that you just love to say welcome. There are people sometimes that get visibly upset and you'd like to just go and sit with them and, and put their arm around them. Sometimes there's people who nod off and it's... So tempting not to just go... (laughs) Very hard for me. You can see what's going on out in the car park. You know who's hiding in the kitchen. 
But for me, the biggest distraction of all is my kids. When my girls are running around in first service and I'm stuck up here, there's not much I can do, you know, if they're making a noise or whatever. And I'm going to tell you a story about one such distracting morning. And as I start telling it, you're going to think, what has this got to do with anything? You'll have to just bear with me till the end. So on this particular morning, it was very hot, one of those very hot days in summer. And I had the mic on and I was sitting there ready to come up and, and speak. And my girls had disappeared out to the toilet and they'd been out there for about 10 minutes. And I'm thinking, well, what's going on? Where are they? Eventually one of them comes back and she says, oh, she's stuck in the toilet, she can't get out. And I'm thinking, oh. So I did what all good parents do and I said, well, I can't do anything about it, go and speak to your dad. And so she went and, and then Bruce disappeared out to the toilet. Nothing happened. About five minutes later, Bruce comes in and he said, is there any keys to those cubicles out there? By this stage, the song before the message has started. And so I rush out to the office and we're rummaging through the key cupboard, eventually find this big set of keys. It's a big set because there's five cubicles. They've all got individual keys and there's the two doors to the male and female. And I didn't have time to try and figure out which one it was. I just gave them to him and I said, look, if you can't get her out, get Graham. He'll, he'll get her out. <laughs> so he disappears, they all disappear, and I come up and start speaking. And I'm getting really worried. They've been out there a long time. It's very hot. It's even hotter in the toilets out there. Eventually, he comes back in. Graham is summonsed and Graham goes out to the toilets. By this stage, I'm getting panicky. Under a minute later, they all come back. The kids come bounding in. So after the service, I went up and I thanked Graham and I said, how'd you get her out? And he said, oh, it wasn't that hard. I just said to her, turn the latch really hard. <laughs> and she did, and the door opened. <laughs> so, see, the trouble was, even armed with the right equipment, the keys, my husband went out there. He knew what the mission was, get the child out of the toilets. But he'd actually never been in any of our portable toilets outside, not even the men's. So he had no idea how the latches worked. So he resorted to doing what all good dads would do when their daughter's in trouble. Get her out! And he broke the handle. Well, <laughs> at least the daughter blames him for breaking the handle. He blames the daughter for breaking the handle. Graham said the whole door had to be replaced. <laughs> so my point is, it's not sufficient just to understand the mission. That's only what needs to be done. You have to know how to go about it or how it works. And in the case of our toilets, you can rattle and force those door handles all you like. You're not going to get anyone out of there unless you understand how they work or you know the one who does understand how they work. And that's how it is with Christian mission. You can rattle and force all you like. You can plan and program and work yourself to exhaustion. All your efforts will amount to very little unless you understand how the mission works or you know the one who does. And of course we do know the one who does and he lives in us, that's the Holy Spirit. All Christian mission belongs to Christ. Only he understands completely how it works because only he knows the hearts of all men. And so it will be our partnership with him, um, only in partnership with him that we will see our efforts succeed. And I believe that's the heart of, of this passage. 
a child freed from the toilets. Our theologian James Torrance puts it this way. He says, the mission of the church is the gift of participating through the Holy Spirit in the Son's mission from the Father to the world. And I think that's a wonderful way of putting it. I think this statement is so liberating because it sees mission not as a burden, as something that we have to do or feel obliged to do. It is a gift. It's a gift of participating in partnership with Christ in the Father's mission through the Holy Spirit. By faith and the saving work of Christ, we enter into that partnership with God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And since mission is a defining part of their union, when we join in that union with them, it should become a defining part of our partnership too. Jesus summed it up when he said, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. So what does it look like to partner with the Holy Spirit in mission? Five points up here. We're going to go through them quite quickly. Uh, this is not a partnership of equals. Holy Spirit is the partner. It is a permanent partnership. It is a relational partnership. At times it is an unpredictable partnership, but it is always a purposeful partnership. So first and foremost, the most important part of this partnership is that it's not a partnership of equals. After all, it is a partnership between God and mortal man. And so it is his mission, not ours, and so his rightful place is as the senior partner in this relationship. Jesus said of this partnership in John, when the counsellor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also will testify. It's not that he will help you testify. He will testify and you also will testify. He goes first. He is the senior in, the, in this role. It is a permanent partnership. So in the Old Testament, they were very familiar with the Holy Spirit being gifted for a time, sometimes to prophets, sometimes to kings, or, or for a certain purpose, and then removed again um, but we live in a very specific and special time it is that time between when the kingdom of God has come in Jesus but it has not yet been fully realized that'll happen when Jesus comes again we call this the age of the church and this is the period that was foretold by the prophet Joel and spoken of by Peter at Pentecost when um, people would dream dreams and see visions and there'd be signs and wonders Key part of that is that it's not just restricted to prophets and kings. This is open now to anyone in this time with the purpose of guiding the church. It is also um, a relational partnership. Uh, Paul ended his second letter to the Corinthian church with this benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now that word fellowship is the same word that is used for communion and it means a sharing or a holding in common or a joint participation. And Jesus said of this union, the one who sent me is with me, he has not left me alone. Jesus was continuously and completely 
possessed by the Holy Spirit for the duration of his ministry on earth. And this was an unprecedented relationship, but it is one that is now available to us. When Jesus died on the cross, some of his final words were, it is finished. And then we're told by John, with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And this giving up of the spirit is used in the Bible to describe other people's deaths. But where it's used here to describe the death of Jesus, the word that is used for spirit is the same word that is used for the Holy Spirit. So at his death, Jesus gave up his spirit so that it could be received by the Father, given back to Jesus to pour out to us. And through that spirit, we become the body of Christ and are being changed into his likeness. And it's in this way that the spirit unites us with Christ and with other believers. And that is why it is such a misnomer um, for people to say they are born-again Christians, but they don't want to be part of a church. Because this... The Holy Spirit is a relational spirit. And so to be filled with the spirit but not want to relate to any other Christians, it doesn't sort of add up. It's also an unpredictable partnership. According to English bishop and theologian John Taylor, mission is often described as if it were a planned extension of an old building. And I think many of us can relate to that here with what's going on here. Um, there's been... Plenty of meetings, uh, plenty of planning. Damien and Graham have been involved in endless planning. But, says John Taylor, in fact, it has usually been more like an unexpected explosion. Consider Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch. If Philip was down in Samaria. He's leading some great revival meetings. Many people were coming to Christ. All of us, if we were in his situation, would have wanted to stay in Samaria, see more people one to Christ. There was great joy in that city, the Bible tells us. But he wasn't the senior partner in that relationship and the Holy Spirit had other ideas, sending him out to the desert to meet the Ethiopian eunuch. And through him, um, the gospel was taken to the continent of Africa. Not by the careful planning of a man, but through an unexpected explosion of the Holy Spirit. In this respect, I think the Celts got it right. And I've spoken to you before about their, the word that they use for the Holy Spirit on God Gloss, which means the wild goose. And they gave him that name because in observing his actions amongst them, they saw that he was noisy and boisterous, couldn't be tracked or tamed, was unpredictable, and there was an element of danger about him. Unfortunately, this is the image that many of us prefer. We like to have the Holy Spirit in a box, in a trolley, in a predictable caged environment where we can take him around, where we'd like him to go and let him out only when we want him to be let out. We're happy to have him with us as long as he's quiet and well behaved. And this, I believe, is a huge problem affecting the Western Church today. Finally, it is a purposeful partnership. So we've talked about how we live in this age of the church between the current age and the age to come. All believers, when they're filled with the Holy Spirit, 
get a taste of this age to come. And so ours is a purposeful partnership because it's always driving towards that age to come. There is to be no standing still in our partnership with the Holy Spirit. So where does this leave us today? We know the work of mission was begun by Jesus and that the continuing work of mission is his also. His mission continues on earth through the Holy Spirit who lives in all believers and by whom we become his body on earth. First and foremost then, our role in this partnership is not to get busy planning and doing the active work. Our primary role is in discerning what the Holy Spirit is up to and seeking to join him in it. So whether you're involved in overseas mission work or mission at home, first and foremost, we need to remember that the mission is not ours. And if our prayers are solely along the lines of we're doing this, this and this, God please bless these ministries and help us with this or that, rather than show us by your Holy Spirit what you're doing in this situation and how we can join you in it, then we may well labour in vain. Because he understands the hearts of all people, the Holy Spirit is well ahead of us in preparing the hearts of those that will come into this place and attend many of our ministries. So we need to stay alert, we need to watch, we need to listen and we need to consider. You know, today marks a very special milestone in this church. I don't know if any of you are aware of what that might be. Today's a very special day because today we are officially exactly halfway through our building program. And so could there be a better time to reflect on where we've come from and to ponder where we're heading? As we move forward as a church, we need to ask God to show us where he is working and how we can join him on mission with him. We need to ask, we need to watch, listen and consider. And keep in mind the example of the early church. Remember Paul and Barnabas, they were seeing many new converts from among the Gentiles. And yet the Pharisees were insisting that these new converts obey the laws of Moses and the customs of the Jews. So how did they discern the way forward in all of this? We can read it in Acts 15. They watched what the Holy Spirit was doing among the Gentiles. They listened to the reports of others about what was happening. They debated among themselves about what this all meant. And they considered how what they were seeing and hearing aligned with the scriptures. And then they made their report on the way forward in this particular mission field. In Acts 15.28, they report, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and it seemed good to us. So now, as we move into the second half of our building program, we need to all be thinking about future areas of ministries. But we need to be sure that that goose is not trapped in the shopping trolley, so to speak. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to have free reign. And that'll mean loosening our grip a little bit. So I urge you to spend time, look around, see who God's bringing into this place, see how our gifts and abilities align with perhaps the direction that he might be taking us. Is he laying a burden on any hearts for any particular area of mission? 
And as we move forward together, I pray that we likewise might be able to report it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're going to close now with a, a song of thanks. It's a prayer, but we're going to sing it. Um, it's called There is a Re